Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, we're speaking with Mike Hearn, lead platform engineer at R3 and the first developer of Corda. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Harry. It's good to be here. Where are you based right now? Uh, I live in Zurich in Switzerland, um, and I manage the Corda team, which is based in London. Oh, nice. So is it just you in Zurich, or are there other people? Yeah, it's just me, actually. It's a fully remote position. Um, the rest of the team has an office in the center of London in the city, but uh, I'm out here in Zurich on my own, yeah. You have been around Kotlin for some time. You wrote an article a couple of years ago, which was called Why Kotlin is My Next Programming Language, which still is making the rounds. Like Every so often, I see it pop up on Twitter and other places. And I have to say, why, like, what brought you to Kotlin? Why did you suddenly notice Kotlin back then? Yeah, so uh, that, that article actually starts out by uh, explaining, I think, how I came to Kotlin. It's, um, yeah, like you said, it, it's gone, it, it, go, it keeps going around, I think, because it's actually on the first page of Google results now for when you search for Kotlin. Um, and uh, it's effectively, the, the story is very simple. I have been working in Java for several years because I was been developing um, a library called Bitcoin J. I was a Bitcoin developer for about five years, and I built the primary, um, well, not just a primary Java implementation of the protocol, but actually it was one of the leading protocol implementations out of all of them. Bitcoin J was very widely used for implementing um, wallets and online services and also doing academic research. So Bitcoin J was a, a fair, turned into a fairly large Java project. It's around 100,000 lines of code. And um, I sort of enjoyed the experience. Before that, I was a C++ developer and then come back to Java after many years. But the syntax of the, um, the language was still pretty awkward, even though the platform itself was pretty great. So I started looking around at the alternative JVM language scene um, to look at what was out there. And I looked at Scala and, and Salem and Clojure and, and also Kotlin, which I encountered, I think, through a link on JetBrains' website because I was an IntelliJ user already. And out of all of them, I, I just did an evaluation. I decided that Kotlin seemed to be, even though it wasn't um, as mature as some of the other languages at the time, it was heading in the right direction. I liked a lot of the design decisions. Uh, when I reviewed uh, the documents produced by the team, for example, it, it filled me with confidence. I thought this is a team that really gets it. This is, they're producing something that is what I want. And I decided I'd just pull the trigger and go for it. And I'd say, okay, this is the one I'm going to invest my time in. And that decision has worked out very well, I must say. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, so given two years have passed, you don't regret it? No, not at all. I, I think it's worked out fantastically well, actually. And, um, you know, I was originally intending just to use it for my own projects at the time. Um, when I joined R3, right, as the first developer, I decided I was going to take a bit of a gamble and use it there, too. It was a bit of a gamble because at the time, Kotlin 1.0 hadn't been released yet. So I was betting that that would come out in the next two or three months, which it did. And um, now we are in the uh, we are in the interesting position where financial institutions from all over the world, right, many of whom are of course Java or JVM based, are now experimenting with the quarter platform, and and they're often they don't have to, of course, right. We're enabling them to use Java as well, thanks to Kotlin's Java interop. But many of them are experimenting with Kotlin as a result of that, and they like what they see too. So we're often in a position of helping teach uh, bank developers a bit of Kotlin along the way as well. And you can explain to us Corda a little bit uh, in more detail shortly. But just just to get a big picture, this is a backend. Uh, it's kind of like a server side. Uh, That's right. Yeah, right? it's a it's an enterprise. Uh, uh, it, you can think of it as a database technology. 
Okay. And that's very interesting. And it's good that you adopted Kotlin. Uh, appreciate that, of course. Uh, but especially because, you know, for, for a couple of years and as got, Kotlin has grown in adoption, at times, given its success on the Android platform, a lot of people have kind of felt that this is just a, you know, a language for Android. So having something like Quarter and having people use it for non-Android development is actually very good because it, it shows that, you know, we never intended to create a Android specific language. Um, we very much appreciate the success it's had, but it's good to get case studies and people using it that are outside of just an Android use case. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. And it's, it's surprising to me as well, because uh, things like Anchor actually came later, right? Originally, when I first encountered Kotlin, it didn't really have any particular features for Android developers. No, it was kind of, it was a gradual thing. You know, people started to say, oh, look, I can use this on Android. And we said, well, maybe we can make it a little bit more comfortable or let's see what the pain points are it, with the same philosophy that the language has always had, right? What are the pain points in different areas? How can we try and address this? So we tried to do the same thing for Android. So while initially it wasn't Android specific, we obviously have put in effort to make sure that when you're working with Android, it's as smooth as possible. So tell us a little bit about Corda. I mean, the you know what it, what exactly is it? You said something around database technologies, but can you give us a little bit more details? Yeah. So Corda is the result of um, the financial industry. I'd really say the global financial industry. We, we see this interest all over the world, really sitting up and taking notice of what happened with Bitcoin and uh, later on Ethereum. Um, and observing that these technologies uh, had effectively, especially Bitcoin, had effectively created an entirely new financial system from scratch that ran in parallel to the, the, the standard financial system. And that the way it worked was by creating a kind of global shared ledger, right, a global shared database in effect of who owned what, that didn't rely on um, banks or central banks to maintain it. And this... Um, you would you would have expected this to uh, be seen as a as a competitive threat uh, to the banking system. That's sort of what it set out to be at the beginning. But actually, um, uh, financial institutions looked at this as an opportunity because they said, "Well, we spend an enormous amount of time, um, you know, effectively synchronizing different institutions together. There's no." real standard database technology in the financial space, right? The closest you've got is um, a standard messaging format called Swift. Uh, but uh, this messaging format is quite old and it's often um, not very precisely specified. And as a result, it's, it's quite common that institutions get out of sync with each other. And then they have to perform complex reconciliation processes, which reveal that you know they're not in sync, that one side or the other is missing information, for example. Um, and then they, they go through an often manual, um, human-heavy process to repair these uh, losses of synchronization. They call them breaks. So it turns out a lot of the people who are you know, working in skyscrapers, in financial centers, uh, working in banks around the world, are effectively taking part in a kind of human-powered database replication protocol, <laughs> which is, of course, not very effective right? and very, and very costly and flaky. Um, and you, you hear stories of, you know, people make payments and they just go missing and then they're found <laughs> six months later on a USB stick or something like that, right? Because the whole thing is pretty, um, pretty old, right? The, the industry adopted technology very, very early on when computers were brand new um, and then has sometimes not always upgraded since then. 
So there's a lot of potential to upgrade, um, but it needs to be a very big upgrade indeed to make it worthwhile. And it involves getting all these institutions to collaborate on complex IT projects, which is a very difficult thing for them to do. So Corda is um, a Bitcoin-inspired technology. It, it takes many ideas from Bitcoin and Ethereum. It blends them with many new ideas of its own as well, all tailored for the financial system to create a, a global database that they can all share, right? which um, you couldn't do with something like Oracle or Postgres, but you can do with this. So the idea is everyone can put their data in a single database and eliminate all of this manual reconciliation work and all of the mistakes that that entails. Okay. And this is something that many financial institutions are part of, or is it something that just you've created and then financial institutions become your customers, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Well, so Corda is a new platform, right? We began designing and building it about a year and a bit ago now. Um, it's open source. R3 plans to um, you know, offer commercial enterprise supported edition um, with more features and uh, you know, commercial, commercial support and so on. Um, much like JetBrains does with IntelliJ where there's a sort of a open source community edition and then an ultimate edition which people pay for to get more features. Yeah. Um, we also offer things like training courses and other things so people can learn how to use the technology. And R3 is itself a consortium of um, institutions where they come together and can work on projects collaboratively. So it's a it's sort of a mix of those things. It's, it's new build. It's not an existing system. It's one we're trying to put together. Um, but it is very much uh, a system built in the spirit of collaboration. And why Kotlin? Because as, as far as I understand, you said that you know, Corda is built from scratch, basically using Kotlin. So why Kotlin? Well, uh, there were a bunch of reasons. So one is that um, the real question, I think, is actually not why Kotlin. It was why the JVM, right? And once we decided to build this thing on the JVM, at that point, um, we looked at a few options. Um, and, you know, I advocated for Kotlin. I, I started prototyping in Kotlin. I said, well, look, um, we don't, the thing with this is we, this will allow us to move quickly ourselves because at the, at the, at the time we weren't sure even if we were going to build this thing, right? We, we needed to establish first that we had something that was competitive and, and interestingly new and wasn't just a re recreation of Bitcoin or Ethereum itself, for example. And we started prototyping, so we wanted to move fast, but we said, look, this, if this develops into a full product, it provides all the code exports Java compatible APIs, right? The, Kotlin classes turn into Java classes that have getters and setters and so on. And, um, you know, you can compile the code to Java docs. And um, it's essentially, with a few annotations in the right places, it's essentially transparent to Java developers what it's written in. So um, we can get the benefits of, of the much more productive um, syntax and much more productive uh, tool chain than what Java has. But our users don't have to know or care in effect. And this gives us the best of all worlds when developing on top of the JVM. And we picked the JVM for a bunch of reasons, but mostly it's, you know, it's the business standard, it's the enterprise standard. There are great libraries um, and tools which we have been able to use to accelerate our development significantly. And um, it's because of that. We, we have uh, um, competitors written in languages like Go, for example, where they just don't have access to that same um, tool set and set of great mature libraries. And one of the reasons we've been able to catch up, despite starting a bit later than them, is that ability to build on the JVM and interrupt so excellently with Java code. How long did it take you from start to finish? I mean, how long was the project? 
The project is still ongoing. It's um, we're, we're working towards uh, API stability by end of Q3. That's our goal. You know how it is with software and goals, but that's what we're aiming for. <laughs> Which goals? Um, and then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then um, uh, sort of a production-ready version um, sometime after that. So the, the project is in development now, but it's done in an agile style, right? So developers are, just like Kotlin itself, it was developed for quite some time out in the open before that you declared version one and gathered feedback from developers, changed APIs, broke code in some ways. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that impressed me actually about Kotlin and one of the reasons I, I felt confident enough to go with it even before it had reached version one was uh, the way that JetBrains would provide um, automatic migrations, uh, even between pre-releases of the language. So you could build an app with, you know, a Kotlin, um, you know, I don't remember, like milestone, whatever. Um, and then the next milestone would come out and it wouldn't be totally compatible, but IntelliJ would actually rewrite your code for you so that it worked again. And that's sort of... Um, care and attention to the early users really um, struck me, right? That's not something I've ever seen happen before with a programming language. And it gave me a lot of confidence and we're actually aiming to do the same um, for quarters. So each quarter release comes out monthly and it's not compatible with the previous releases. But what we're starting to do now is um, help users migrate between releases with little tools and deprecation and things like that. Given that this is an open source project and you want people to collaborate on it, did you ever question whether going with Kotlin would be a showstopper to get people on board? Yes. Yes, I thought about that a lot. Uh, so did, uh, you know, at the time I joined, there was myself, Richard and James, and we were the, we were the tech team. So we discussed this um, amongst ourselves. It wasn't so much about open source collaboration that we were worried about, but all whether the intended target market, right, like banks and large conservative financial institutions would bulk at um, a product implemented in a language that they're not familiar with. Um, and we decided to make a uh, educated guess, in effect, that it would be okay. We decided to make uh, an informed uh, gamble in a way that uh, they would be okay with that. And actually what we found is that, uh, you know, initially they they were sort of like, well, what what is this? <laughs> what is this weird language? What, are you guys serious? Do you have credibility? Um, and I think as they looked at it a bit more and they saw we were serious and they, they read the, the Kotlin documentation and their developers started experimenting with it, they, they realized that this is actually a, um, a very smooth evolution from Java. And many, many institutions actually have been using, for example, Scala in the past and uh, still do use Scala and, and have been, you know, they, they've wanted to move on from Java as a syntax as well while retaining the ecosystem. But their experiences with that have been kind of mixed. Some institutions have also used Haskell and, and other things, right? It's a big industry. Um, but what we've what we've heard a lot of feedback on is, firstly, you know, this concern about it being written in Kotlin has gone away. We haven't heard anything about that for quite some time now. Um, and also, we've we've been thanked quite a few times actually by bank developers who have been asked by their management to evaluate the platform and develop apps based on it. And they've said, well, thank goodness I can use Kotlin in this, in this thing. And then you sort of made that acceptable because this has made my job a lot more enjoyable too. So in the end, I think that's, that, that was a gamble, but it has paid off and we haven't noticed any obvious um, you know, shortage of open source contributions as a result. If you're using Kotlin or planning to, make sure you check out KotlinConf a conference taking place in sunny San Francisco on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2017. It's a two-day event packed with Kotlin content by industry experts with keynotes from Andre Breslav and Eric Meyer. So whether it's back-end, front-end, mobile, or native, 
KotlinConf is the place to be this year. That's KotlinConf, C-O-N-F dot com. Hope to see you there. Given that Kotlin is kind of an evolution, you would say, to Java in a, in a smooth path of migration, so to speak, you know, as a knowledge, if you know Java, it's quite simple to pick up Kotlin. I mean, would you agree that you can easily read Kotlin code without studying Kotlin in depth? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, I would say so. And not only that, you can easily learn it. We've, we've hired people who didn't know Kotlin. In fact, the entire team didn't know Kotlin before they joined and the ramp up time was very short. Right. And then there is the aspect of, you know, idiomatic Kotlin. So if I look at a file, for instance, right now, I'm looking at one of the files from Corda and I see a very similar structure of, you know, classes, familiar structure of classes, functions, etc. And of course, with Kotlin, you can do some more quote unquote extravagant things in the sense of, you know, higher order functions, lambdas with receivers and things like that. Has that ever been a showstopper in terms of adoption in the sense that if we kind of keep to a Java-ish flavor of Kotlin, if, if you know what I mean there, it will be more widely accepted and people would be able to use it easily? Or have you gone full-blown and said, let's really take advantage of some of the things that Kotlin allow us to do in a more idiomatic way? Mm -hmm. well, we've done both, actually. Um... So Corda exposes a bunch of like basically Java-esque APIs to developers. And in the core APIs, we try and keep that as Java-like as possible. We occasionally um, uh, find that we've made mistakes there and, and maybe in future uh, versions of IntelliJ could help out uh, with some intentions. Like for example, we, we tend to forget um, JVM static annotations on companion object methods. So then it's a bit more awkward to access from Java. It's not hard, right? You just type, just type a bit of extra code and it's done. Um, overloads, you know, sometimes we add uh, parameters with default arguments and forget to add the overloads annotation. These are very easy to fix, but you don't tend to notice them until you try and write Java code and notice it's not quite as smooth as it could be. Um, and then in other areas of the project, we've actually gone, we've actually, uh, on like full Kotlin in, in other parts. So for example, internal code, we've developed our own DSLs, um, several of them. For example, uh, we have developed DSLs for unit testing in particular that make it much easier to test um, different transactions that apply to the global ledger. We've developed um, uh, DSLs to drive load testing frameworks. We've even, we've and, and well, actually I say we, um, we haven't done this. This was an open source contribution from a developer who worked at one of the banks in the consortium. He developed a an entire DSL for the expression of financial contracts, which makes heavy use of things like infix functions and lambdas with receivers. And we're looking forward to upgrading to Kotlin 1.1 to get some of the DSL um, upgrades, right? There's new annotations to help you define DSLs. We were previously cludging around uh, what that feature now does in a much more elegant way. So um, I would say core APIs, we stick to Java type interfaces as much as possible. We avoid tricks and occasionally we make mistakes and we, we discover we've used a Kotlin feature and we need to back out a bit or add annotations. And then in other areas where the APIs are less, um, where, where we're not doing APIs, we're doing uh, internal stuff or actually want to do full-blown like Kotlin specific features, we use everything and hit the limits and, you know, we like the upgrades because they're going to help in those areas. Yeah, and that you bring up a very good point regarding the annotations uh, when trying to access certain APIs from Java because of you know the the aspect of having to uh, annotate it, saying that this is static. 
it's a yeah that's a good point maybe we should add something in IntelliJ to kind of say you know are you going to expose this to Java in some way or, or other so then now one of the things I'll ask in in response to that is okay you say the internal stuff I'm using more uh, Kotlin in a more idiomatic style and then the API I'm assuming you're talking a little bit also about the API that you expose to potential Java developers is more kind of Java-ish, right? Exactly. So then what about the person that is using this from Kotlin in the sense that if I have like a public surface API that feels very Java-ish so that people that are using this from a Java interop or feel at home, what if I want to use it directly from Kotlin? How do I get that nicer idiomatic way? Do you also provide like an API for, for Kotlin consumers? We don't know. I mean, you know, one of the nice things about Kotlin is that it is very focused on enhancing Java APIs. So what we can do is even though we are developing a, you know, even though the whole thing is written in Kotlin, except for the, the libraries we use, of course, um, we can develop the core APIs such that they they restrain themselves to features that interrupt well with Java, and then we can go ahead and enhance our own API with things like extension methods and extension properties and so on. And we've done things um, like that. So, you, for example, you can type. Um, we have extension functions on, um, uh, for example, int. So you can do things like type one thousand dot dollars. And uh, that will generate, uh, um, uh, it, it, we have a types for representation of monetary amounts. And then you can go ahead and use infix functions to say, okay, I want a $1,000 issued by uh, the, the Federal Reserve, for example, or issued by a, a high street bank. So Corda's notion of money includes the tracking the issuer of that money. Um, and this uses um, Kotlin's uh, DSL and extension features to extend our own API, which works out quite well in the end. So effectively, you don't need to have like this double maintenance or double the work no, or no. anything. Exactly. No, no, no. We, we we have one API, and there's you know we we don't um, have like duplicate versions for Java or Kotlin. No. Okay. And one of the things that people often ask is. Can I use Kotlin on server-side tools, you know, backend, web services, etc.? How performant is it? And obviously, a lot of people are new to, to Kotlin and don't realize that essentially at the end of the day, this is generating bytecode. Have you found any issues in that sense? Um, no. I mean, I, I read Java bytecode pretty well, so, you know, I... I quite appreciate the fact that the Kotlin plugin actually comes with a little sidebar, which lets you quickly see what um, bytecode was generated for any particular method. And then these days, there's also a decompile button, right? Um, I, I found it doesn't always work. Not not every class successfully decompiles. But uh, when it does, it shows you the Java equivalent. And that's pretty nice. Um, because then, you know, even if, if you're learning Kotlin, that's actually a great learning tool because you can take a piece of Kotlin code that you're not quite sure how to read and push decompile and you can see what it turns into in the Java level. Um, we haven't encountered any issue with uh, Kotlin's bytecode generation. There are a few places where, uh, you know, we could benefit from using Java 8 bytecode for, you know, shrinking our jars and things like that or default methods on interfaces and, and so on. But other than that, it's not been a, any kind of performance issue, no. And regarding the interop, have you had any specific issues or has that been more or less, uh, you know, what's the word that I'm looking for? Very uh, fluid, would you say? Yeah, 
No, it's frictionless. Frictionless. Yeah, it's been pretty frictionless. Um, I, I'm trying to think if there have been any like bugs or issues that crops up due to Java interop. I don't think so. Occasionally, what people will do is, um, you know, for example, if you subclass a Java class and you um, you override a method, all of the parameters are generated as nullable by default, for example, even though in, in practice often they are never null. And sometimes, uh, especially developers who are new to Kotlin, for example, they just they don't realize that you can take it out and that the compiler will allow you to override it with a non-nullable and that will generate the null checks for you. And so they go ahead and they just use the bang-bang operator to cast away the nullability everywhere. So there are a few things where this stuff gets caught in code review. It's, it's hardly a problem because you, know, you, you, you tell someone that once and then they know for future. That's, other than that, I mean, that's a very trivial issue. And I think that's a, that speaks to the, um, the excellent job that was done of, uh, of uh, the interrupt there. It's worked out very well. Well, we do have really large code bases in Java, so we, you know, yeah, we do yeah. suffer the problem ourselves to try and solve it. So coming back to the actual idea of Corda, uh, if let's say that you know I want to, I mean, this is very much focused on financial institutions. As someone that is trying to get into Kotlin, as someone that's trying to you know maybe learn more and wants to contribute and comes across this project on github where do they start in the sense that let's say for my my myself you know i'm not an expert in anything in terms of uh financial institutions or what goes on and on whatnot how do i get involved in this like is there a place for me to even potentially get involved yeah that's a great question um you know, uh, when I used to maintain Bitcoin J, which was basically volunteer-driven, you know, we used to have a, a list of fun tasks that volunteers could take on, and that's something that I've never got around to doing for Corda. Um, it's an open-source project that's on GitHub, so of course you can download it, you can build it, you can play with it, you can file pull requests to add features and so on. Um, I think for this project, we'll probably see less in the way of volunteer-driven development, simply because... Um, you know, if you're doing, if you're developing financial software, that's probably because you're getting paid. It's not the sort of weekend project that most people are <laughs> going to want to have. Um, so what we what we get is people who are contributing. Um, you know, and they they we have we run a public Slack, for example, where you can talk to the developers uh, during their working hours, um, and uh, they they sometimes contribute things. Um, that they've developed as part of their own projects. Um, but that that's, again, people who are developing their own apps on top of the platform, usually to solve some business problem their institution has. What I think we'll, we'll do um, in future, um, maybe not this year, but perhaps uh, once we've got our version one out, is we, we're, de we're developing a bunch of infrastructure that might be useful for many projects, in particular around uh, message queue-based RPC, um, you know, Kotlin extensions to common tasks, uh, common libraries, um, uh, JavaFX type helpers, a bunch of other things. Um, and, uh, you know, we're working on a, a new serialization engine, for example. And I know Kotlin has some features planned to do serialization integration in future. Um, and what we might start doing is breaking those out into libraries that are more widely useful to developers outside of finance. And at that point, we might see more, more pickup in there. So you would say, though, that if someone... Like they need to know the basics of of the domain, you know, the financial domain to to be able to contribute or understand well, the code. Well, a, a lot of the like the example apps um, in Corda they range from the very simple uh, to the quite advanced. So you know we have the ability to just 
you know, you could just issue yourself some Disney dollars and send them between nodes on a peer-to-peer network, for example. You can do that, and you, everyone understands money, I hope, the basics of it, at least. <laughs> um, and then we've got more advanced apps, like this one to, for managing um, interest rate swaps, which is considered, you know, very uh, a simple hello world type thing by the actual intended users of this platform. But it's, you know, for someone who's not in finance, it's, it's quite complicated. Um so, you know, you can certainly build um, those sorts of uh, things on top of it. Um, but right now, you would need at least a little bit of interest in finance, I think, to find a lot of the stuff useful. We might generalize it outside of finance in future, but that's not our focus right now. Yeah, but as I'm asking because going to the, to the site, browsing through the code, there's a lot of interesting code there, you know, and I see this as a really good potential for people that want to understand Kotlin, how you put it in use, how you use it on the server side. It's it's great. And you look at the stars, you got you got quite a few number of stars. Like, I mean, okay, let me step back. I hate people choosing technology based on GitHub stars. So I don't want to. Oh I wasn't even aware people did that. <laughs> oh, God, yes, they do. Yes, they do. yes. Okay. Um, you know, I know it's sad. Our, our industry is sad at times. But Having said that, you do have quite a big number of stars and forks, so it's it's interesting that, you know, for something that is, I would say, not niche, because the finance industry isn't niche, but, like, you know, the crossover between what you're doing, Kotlin, and fintech is kind of, like, a little bit more niche, if you were to speak. Um, so it's interesting to see the, the pickup that, that it's, it's having. Yeah, it's Great. fantastic, especially because we've only been open source since November. So this is all in the last uh, few months, basically, last three or four months. Wow, that is um, good then. So is... we're, we're looking forward to a lot more growth this year. Um, we're looking forward to, we're, we're hiring. I should mention that. <laughs> I'm going to get something out of this. You can go to the, the r3.com and, and click through and you can find jobs. We're looking in particular for developers in London and, and New York. Um, but you don't need Kotlin experience because right, we're happy to... Happy for you to learn on the job, but uh, obviously, if you if you have Kotlin experience, that's that certainly helps. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm hoping we'll rack up a bunch more stars in future. That's cool. So you are hiring, and that that's that's excellent because a lot of people also come and say, you know, what is the job market like for for Kotlin? If I were to get into Kotlin, um, you know, are there many positions open? And I always say, like, please let's stop pigeonholing ourselves into I'm a JavaScript developer or I'm a Kotlin developer or I'm a Java developer. You know, at the end of the day, these are tools that we can pick up. Like people learn and they they can pick up a language in a couple of months and then become yeah, an expert absolutely. in that language. I would say much less. I mean we we've had we've seen ramp up times for the developers we've hired on getting used to Kotlin and getting productive in the order of a few days or less, to be honest. It's it's a very easy language to pick up. Partly because you know if you a lot of it, a lot of what it does is is sort of automate patterns that many people are already familiar with and have done the hard way many times, and so they come across this stuff and then just like, oh yeah, I just I get this, you know, this is convenient. I I already know what I want to do, and this just makes it easier. So we've seen ramp up times very low, um, but yeah, our team has uh, the we don't hire like specifically Java developers or Kotlin developers. Um, some of the people on our team were you know, doing C++ and Haskell and C Sharp and stuff before they joined our team. Some of them didn't know Java, even the Java platform, right? That, but that's okay, because uh, what we look for are like strong, strong generalists. Yeah, people learn. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. They, they actually learn. It's fantastic. Yeah. They do. <laughs> yeah, cool. And uh, we have to mention, because of course, uh, yesterday, 
because we're recording this on the 15th of March. And on the 14th of March, we announced KotlinConf, which is going to take place in San Francisco. And I know you and I have been talking uh, mm-hmm. about uh, you coming and giving a talk there, right? And I'm going to put you on the spot now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I was chatting about that with uh, my boss, who's now on vacation. So we didn't, uh, we didn't drive it to completion. So um, yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to come along and, uh, and meet the global Kotlin community there. And uh, essentially, I would, love to, I would love to give a talk as well. I mean, it's a great opportunity for us to talk about what we've been doing with server-side Kotlin and so on. And um, it's on me now to find enough other things to do in that part of the States that I can sort of justify the business travel, but there's plenty of people to see out there as well. So it's San Francisco. I mean, too hard. Exactly. It's it's the center of the tech universe. It's not going to be hard to put together a good itinerary there. Exactly. So yeah, looking forward to it. Great. Well, thanks again for being on and uh, speak to you soon. Yeah. Thank you, Hadi. Speak soon.